Hi, I'm Joanna Roach with the Mariah Mitchell Association, and you are listening to The Nature of Nantucket. I am here today with Dr. Rich Blundell, who is joining the Mariah Mitchell Association this summer as our visiting scientist. Welcome, Rich. Hi, thanks, Joanna. It's really great to be here. (laughs) We are excited to have you. Uh, So I'd love to share with our audience a little bit about your experience and what brought you here and what interests you about the natural world of Nantucket. So um, let's start with, where are you from? Um, I am originally from the South Shore, a little town called Duxbury, uh, which is on Cape Cod Bay. But I definitely consider the Cape and Islands my home of homes. So this is where I'm from. Okay. And how did you get interested in, you know, the ocean and the natural world? Mm. Well, by skipping school, mostly. Uh, (laughs) I uh, discovered the ocean um, probably in the sixth grade. Um, And from that point on, I was really truant quite a bit. Once I discovered the, the, you know, Cape Cod Bay, I spent a lot of time um, fishing, ended up getting into some commercial fishing and uh, yeah, have just been hooked on the ocean ever since. Great. And then how did you, how did you become a scientist? (laughs) Almost by accident, really. I, um, science. Well, the thing is, is, the reason I pursued science was just because I love to be outside. That's really what it was about. I, when I, around that time when, you know, teenagers are asking themselves what they want to do with their lives, I asked myself that question. And the clearest answer I could come up with was just that I wanted to be in nature as much as possible. And for me, that turned out to be geology. So that was the study that I first engaged with. That's the science that I first engaged with. All right. And then tell us a little bit about where did it go from there? How did it develop? Uh, My scientific career? Well, uh, it was a bit uh, um, unconventional, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, After I I, I had a something of an epiphany as I was out there fishing one day on Stellwagen Bank, where I caught this huge bluefin tuna. And um, as I watched it die, it it inspired me to change the trajectory of my life. And so even having, you know, not been very, a very good student through high school, after that tuna incident happened, I was really inspired to understand, you know, what that experience was all about. How could, you know, a big fish on the deck of a boat in some way, communicate a different path in life for a young man. And so at that point, I re-entered into academia through the sciences. As I said, got a degree in geology and also in marine biology. And then, um, you know, and, and as an undergraduate, I, I had the chance to participate in some, some research, you know, doing some real research, um, got a few little things published you know, with other people. But then I got really interested in the history and philosophy of science as well. So I ended up um, getting a master's degree uh, in the history and philosophy of science, which is really a deep dive into 
how science works and also how it doesn't work in some ways. And so that's, that, was, that was sort of the next curvature of my career. And then finally, I ended up getting a PhD in an emerging field called big history or deep history, which is um, the, big history. I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it itself is a scientific discipline, but it definitely draws on all of the scientific knowledge that we've managed to generate, but it also draws upon, uh, you know, human historical, anthropological, as well as um, um, more social and cultural, sci- the social and cultural sciences. It's a field that tells the, the story of the cosmos, not only from a human perspective, but it tells the story of the cosmos as with humans as an integral part of it. So it is this all-encompassing account of all, that, all of the knowledge that humanity has been able to, to muster. Uh, and that's what I ended up getting my PhD in. I studied how, um, how engaging with the story of the cosmos from you know, basic physics to astronomy, to chemistry, to biology, to geology, to uh, zoology and anthropology and human history and industrial history and economic history and technology, how all of those, how studying all of those disciplines can in some way trans, uh, can somehow elicit a transformative experience in the student, the people who learn this story, how can that be a transformative experience? That's, that pretty much sums up, you know, my academic uh, career. And so how do you, so you think that, that, you know, your interest in sort of the philosophy and history of science led you to this big history concept? Yeah, but it was more the tuna, actually. I mean, it was actually the tuna that really shifted my perception of what to do with a life. You know, it was, it was that moment that it was, it was very much a, a, a transitional period of my life. I was sort of be going from being a, a kid just to a young adult. And when that happened, it gave me this opportunity to reassess who I might want to be in the world. You know, and, and the track that I was on, I'll, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't, it wasn't that great. You know, I was a troublemaker back then. and. Um, and so it was that moment where, you know, and what I've learned since, like what, what I've come to understand is that that moment out there on Stellwagen Bank was an opportunity to remember what it's like to be a kid, but even as an adult. In other words, kids see the world a certain way. It's full of magic. It's full of complexity. It's full of wonder. It's full of opportunity. It's just full. Life is. And then as we get to be adults, culture, society, economics, politics, they all start to limit what, what life could be. You know? And so that, that moment was a, was a sort of kick in the pants not to forfeit that more you know, that more childlike or adolescent way of being in the world 
just because you have to be an adult. And so, you know, that, that was more of a, um, that was more of a pivotal moment uh, for me than, than whatever the other one you was, you were, you were referring to, (laughs) whatever that was. Your transition into the study of big history. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, well, the reason big history is because what I started to slowly figure out or discern was that in order to understand everything, you had to understand how that thing came to be. In other words, you had to understand its context. You had to understand its history. And if you really sort of do that, if you really learn obsessively, which by the way, I think it should be, I think it's noteworthy that I went from being a kid who was really seemingly not interested in learning, at least by school standards, to a kid who was, I was just insatiable as a, as a learner. And so the reason big history ended up being the kind of final destination for my, although it's not final, but the, you know, the ultimate destination for my education was because it's, it's the story of everything. It's the story how, of how everything is related to everything else and how, you know, one thing leads to another thing and how complexity arises in the world. And so it was just, it just became the natural uh, subject to, you know, to satisfy a really vigorous curiosity. So give me some examples. Please. Of of what big history yeah. does? Yeah, or 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 the way in which you were seeing things at that time. Well, I mean, the what 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 I now know is the big insight of big history is that it 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 demonstrates, it sort of proves to the curious person how everything is deeply connected. How you know, in my current work, it's, we call it ontological continuity, which is a fancy way of saying that reality is literally on a continuum, that everything that makes up reality really is connected to everything else. And that, and if you, if you really take that seriously, that idea of continuity, then you realize that you are part of that, 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 you know, the person that is asking the questions is, is also a part of that, that continuity. And there are, you know, there are all kinds of impacts that that can have on the way that someone sees the world. It can have impacts on the way that we relate to the world. Because in some sense, what it's saying scientifically is that, you know, what I do to the world, in some sense, I also do to myself. And that you know, that, that comes with a, you know, packaged with a kind of ethos about how to be in the world. And so this is why I think, you know, big history is, is a, not just it's why it's such a rich subject. It's not just because it's, it's got more content than, than you could ever, you know, hope to know, but it also comes with these attendant qualities of experience that are available to all of us. If we just if we just take them seriously, if we see them as actually part of the real world, that everything is it's it's one thing to say that everything is connected. It's another thing to actually live as if that's true. 
And that's what I think big history ultimately has to teach us. Okay. That's, I think that's totally fascinating. What kinds of things are you working on now? And what kinds of things will you work on while you're here on Nantucket? Well, I should probably mention, you know, why I'm attracted to Mariah Mitchell, the Mariah Mitchell Association. Um, you know, I've been admiring the organization from America, you know, from, from the mainland for several, <laughs> from several, for several years, because it has this natural resonance with what big history is all about. I mean, if you think about it, sure, Mariah Mitchell was America's first woman astronomer, but she's actually much more than that. You know, she was, you know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that she was a true Renaissance woman of her time. And she was a naturalist and she was a historian and she was a, um, a social and political figure with, you know, with, with substantial impact on things. And so I think it's, I just find it fascinating that there is an organization here on the East coast in an incredibly, you know, uh, magical place where there is this character, this figure from history who actually, in her own way, she had an impact or touched upon every discipline that, that big history defines. Sure, she was an astronomer, but to understand astronomy, you have to know something about physics. And, and then as she spent a lot of time outdoors, she was, you know, had to know a lot about biology and natural history. And then as a, as a woman you know, in her, of her time, she had to you know, she had to navigate the the political and social um, conditions, and that requires. So, so I guess what I'm saying is that if you if you you can look at the Mariah, Mariah Mitchell and the Mariah Mitchell Association as a kind of microcosm of what big history is all about, and and so I've always you know looked to the Mariah Mitchell Association as this um, as a place that is potentially doing big history and, and maybe not knowing it. And um, so that's what, you know, that's what attracts me uh, to it, to see it in action like that. And, and, and there's another part too, and that is her, her, her Quakerism. The fact that, you know, that that, that particular um, religion sees the world in a very ontologically continuous way, for lack of a better way of saying it. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's almost a, an intrinsic part of that, um, you know, of that culture. And so Mm -hmm. I think the ethos that goes with that is incredibly relevant to the situation that we find ourselves in today with respect to climate change and ecological issues like that, that there is that part of that, you know, that, that Quaker instinct is a, um, is an impulse to appreciate diversity, appreciate complexity, appreciate harmony in the way that you know all these different elements come together. And so when you when I just look at that whole constellation of things, no pun intended, but if I look at that whole constellation of of um, factors, this organization I think is uniquely positioned to play a very important and unique 
role in our, our current uh, in our current um, situation. In other words, that um, we've got these perennial problems that that extend all the way from you know economic and political and racial and ecological. And an organization like the Mariah Mitchell Association, because it is because it is eclectic and rigorous at the same time, it uh, it is positioned to actually make a big difference in how we understand and respond to these challenges. So I realized that that was not the question that you asked me about what are the examples of what I'm up to. So I'm happy to give that another shot if you want. <laughs> That's a great answer. And I think the context of talking about big history is super interesting to our listeners and in terms of, of the way that, you know, you can start to understand you know, who Mariah Mitchell was during her time, but also who is she now and what does mm. she what does she represent in this current worldview? So I know that you are also interested in ecological restoration. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Well, sure. Um, ecological restoration is uh, an attempt for humans to uh, sort of undo historical damage to ecosystems and to habitats. And it's a it's a it's a growing field, um, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, there's there's plenty of habitats that have been damaged by you know human decisions, and there's a growing need to have those habitats restored for their ecological value. Um, so that's what it is. And uh, you know, around here in you know southeastern New England, there are a lot of uh, cranberry bogs. Uh, so I'm really I'm really passionate about the cranberry bog habitat because that was the habitat that made me like as a kid when I whenever I get into a, a cranberry bog or into a wetland habitat it, it sort of transports me back to being a little kid again because I can just sort of taste the I can taste the water I can feel the grit of the mud between my teeth and I can just smell you know those the smell of mosses and white pines and that sort of thing. So I get really excited whenever one of these cranberry bogs is slated to be restored. In other words, returned to its original wetland habitat or something that's that's taking into account how climate is changing. So there, you know, one of the ideas now is to not try and restore a habitat back to its original um, habitat, but something that could be even more resilient, you know, to climate change. And so, um, you know, that's something that really excites me just to see uh, wetlands being brought back. So, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what I'm really excited about in terms of ecological. And there's others, of course, there's mar marine habitats. I do a lot of work with coral reefs, not here, of course, but in other places. Right. So, yeah. Well, there's, I, there's no shortage of um, habitats here for you to explore and get involved in. Yeah. And, you know, what's really fascinating, I think, is that when we do ecological restoration, we're actually restoring the human dimension as well. Like when, when a habitat flourishes, so do the people, the people that are around it, the people that visit it, the people that use it. There's a real positive feedback loop that starts when you bring a habitat back. It's not just, you know, the, the organisms, but it's also the humans because there are organisms too. But, but, there is this um, double-faceted benefit of, of eco for ecological restoration. 
Right. Well, I think that's likely a topic for another conversation. And I want to say thank you for joining us today. If you have been listening, my name is Joanna Roach. I'm with the Mariah Mitchell Association. Our podcast is called The Nature of Nantucket. And we've been talking to Dr. Rich Blundell, who is visiting us this summer and working on some interesting projects. All right. Thanks, Rich. Thank you.